Welcome to Corrod Core from Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, Ohio, with Father Patrick Schultz and Chris Serger, where we share heart to heart on topics of faith, culture, and life of the church. So we're um, seven and a half minutes in. Uh, actually, we're thirty-five minutes into our session, <laughs> halfway through our coffee, and here we are on Saturday afternoon. Not even Saturday afternoon. Saturday morning, it is talking about very much Saturday afternoon. I'm sorry, Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> but we are talking about death on a Friday afternoon. Death on a Friday afternoon, life on a Saturday morning. Yes. Here in Wadsworth, Ohio, it is uh, It's beautiful outside. Oh, gosh, it's gorgeous. It's crisp, but it's... Uh, I was coming up, I was driving, so I come up Rymer Road, and Rymer Road goes directly east to west. Oh, yeah. And so I'm coming up the hill, and I'm like, oh, it's like a nice morning. And I got right over that hill, and I was literally Springsteen blinded by the light. And there is this car flying at me. And I was I literally said out loud, I was like, Lord, it's beautiful, but I almost just died. <laughs> it would have been a pretty great death. I was right there, overwhelmed by beauty. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, it's beautiful sunrise here in the uh, uh, March 20th. Literally Springsteen blinded by the light. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. Oh Anyways, who, who are you? Hi, everybody. I'm Father Pat Schultz, parochial vicar here at Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, joined, as always, by my good buddy. Chris Serger, parishioner, going through our awesome, awesome book. Indeed. We are your hosts for Core Odd Core. Um, I'm loving this podcast, and we're, we've been talking about what we're going to do after this book is done, but um, we got some ideas, so don't worry, listeners, we got some ideas, but... Uh, uh, this has been this has been awesome. We're we're working through again death on a Friday afternoon by Father Richard John Newhouse, and um, I remember when you were first telling me about this book, and like this book changed my life. One of the best books I've ever read. I read it every year for Lent, and I was like, this was like early on. Yeah. Just like I'm like okay, all right, jeez, like this, all right, this guy's a little zealous. I don't know what's going on. I mean, and I'm thinking like I've never read Father Richard John Newhouse. Like, is this going to be one of those like hooey spiritual books, dude? I can't tell you. I'm the, I'm now you. I'm like I've been telling all my priests, but I'm like you have to read this book. It is so good. It is so unbelievably good. Um, yeah, I'm just like sad that he's 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 dead. There's nothing more coming from. I, I just, know. Like, I just after this, I have to go back and uh, read all the other ones. But um, I hope you've been enjoying this. Those of you been joining us. Um, where are we right now in the book, Chris? What are we What are we covering today? We are on week six of seven, chapter six of seven. So the next episode that releases will be on Good Friday. So we are on um, the sixth word from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. And the title of this chapter is The Sacrifice. It's The Sacrifice. So, um, God, where do we even start? How about you kick us off? You get yeah. us going. Well... So, you and I were talking, there are a couple key themes that run through this chapter, so it is finished. The idea that the cross, and we've said this in previous episodes, because Newhouse has been talking about, like, the cross is why Jesus came. This is not unforeseen. This is why he came. It was all pointing to this event. So, uh, Newhouse talks about how it is the cross point of time. And you talked about how it's, the world is cruciform, which at its mm. root is crucifixion and cross. It is like where all of time centers. So 
the cross point of time is finished. Like what Jesus has come here to do is finished here. But then he goes into this whole, but okay, then like why didn't history just end there? Why are we still here 2,000 years later unpacking this book and still dealing with pain and suffering? And like, I thought it's finished, right? Yeah. So then it goes into how do we, what is our participation in what happened there on Calvary? And why did it happen in that way? Like it, it was finished, but it was finished in a particular way. It was finished by him being crucified, like this whole idea of the sacrifice. Why did it have to be that way? So, and then of course he talks about like what the cross actually accomplished, the the satisfaction that it accomplishes. It is not God's punishment on His Son. Yeah. It's not His wrath. It's not He's not an angry Father. So Newhouse goes through all of that, and then he brings it back to okay. Now that we have this understanding of here, now it's a lot easier for us to understand how the cross truly is the center of all of time. Yeah. So I think there's a couple ways we can get into this, but. But the first thing is just there, and right on 189, Newhouse, he says, At the cross point, everything is retrieved from the past, and everything is anticipated from the future. And the cross is the point of entry to the heart of God from whom and for whom, quite simply, everything is. I think that's a good place to start, this whole idea of everything that was anticipated. It's so, it's easy for us to look at now and go, okay, and again, we've talked about before, like Holocaust and Pol Pot and child cancer and like all of these things, these all happened after the fact, all these sins that are happening after Christ, like what you and I are living through today. So like, how do we start to understand that? Yeah, I love uh, that that phrase, the cross point of history. Um, I, I think it's awesome. And I love how he says that it is the entry, what's the exact phrase? At the cross point, everything is retrieved from the past and everything is anticipated from the future. Um, the cross is the point of entry to the heart of God, from whom and for whom quincipally everything is. Um, the entry point. In other words, like this is the portal, like this is the access point, right? This is, you want to know what God's love is like? It's this. You want to know how God's love reaches you? It's this. Um, there's no other Christianity. There's no, no other version of the story where there isn't this suffering, this suffering unto the end. This is, this is the way in. This is how God reaches us in, in the most extreme way. And that phrase that it is finished, uh, I was thinking back when, I, so this is my second assignment. When I was finishing my first assignment up at Communion of Saints in Cleveland Heights, um, one of the, you know, the, the, the last mass, the last homily, the last goodbyes, I'm getting in my car and I remember saying to the other parochial vicar I was with, I just, I just said to him, I go, it is finished. And I get in my car and I left. And what I meant, right? I mean, I'm being cheeky. I'm, right. I'm paraphrasing Jesus on the cross or quoting Jesus on the cross. What I meant by it, of course, was the thing I came here to do, my, my time here was done and now I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not exactly the, the, the sense of which... Jesus is speaking, it is finished. That's, that's not so much the, it's like, wow, thank God that's done. Or like, right. thank God that suffering's over with. Thank God that thing is passed. Because uh, it's not just simply done. It's, it's done and now there's still work to be done. Right. Um, yeah, he talks about in the concept of like an artist, right? He's when a sculptor can, he looks at the, the granite and at some point it is finished. It's not like he's done with the work. He's going, 
that's what I had in mind. When yeah. he's done with the sculpture, he's done with the painting. And he goes, um, yeah, it's not over. And that's the whole point. Like, it is finished. The, the, and we've said this before, like, the telus of Jesus', of Jesus is life, the reason he was here, he is what he does. He came to be sacrificed. And he's saying on the cross, it is finished here. He um, he goes on, on 190. I mean, I, on page 190 and 191, if you're reading along, these two pages are completely highlighted and underlined, and yeah. I've written the word boom in the margin. I like wrote the word, ah! <laughs> Just H, 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 H. Yeah. So he, he's talking about, okay, this life that Jesus came here to live out, it is now finished. He goes, uh, what began there, what began there is that love should give birth to love. He's talking about from Genesis and, and breathing into Adam and how this all culminates in what Christ does on the cross. So what began there is that love should give birth to love. So it was that through the word, the first Adam came to be. And because he did not love, the word, meaning Jesus, of course, the word of God, became the second Adam who bore all the fault of all the Adams and all the Eves of aborted love. Here at the cross point, that great work Again, going back to the artist um, mm-hmm. analogy, the great work is definitively finished, quite simply and wondrously. He loved the Father as he was loved by the Father. The cross point is the point of entry into his life. At a particular point in time, on a certain Friday afternoon, on a dung heap outside the gates of Jerusalem, it is said of all time, it is finished, yet it is not over. Oh, but like yeah, so good. Who writes like that? I know. I, I, it's incredible. The this whole notion of of Jesus as the new Adam this comes up again. But um, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with this whole idea that that the church fathers picked up on this pretty early on this idea of Christ being the second Adam that the first the world's first creation that Adam who came forth from virgin soil right. The, the new Adam, Christ, comes forth from his mother's virginal womb. Uh, the first Adam was God's beloved son in the garden. He was meant to stand in this posture of open receptivity, breathing in the Father's love, exhaling praise and glory. But they, you know, like he failed. He failed in his task, the aborted love, right? I, just, I don't want this. I shut it down, right? So Jesus comes to recapitulate. He goes Adam's route, but in reverse, and he succeeds where Adam, the first Adam, failed. And just like the first Adam, whose bride is pulled forth from his side, the new Adam, Christ, as he hangs in death on the cross, his bride, the church, symbolized by the blood and water, poured forth from his side, symbolizing the two great sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. Um, but this, this, this whole idea, like that, the mission. It, I love how it's just boiled down, quite simply and wondrously. He loved the Father as he was loved by the Father. In other words, like, he responded the way we were, he was, like, all of humanity was meant to respond, right? Like, right. that really is the mission. Like, our, our job as human beings, like, part of the great failure, the tragedy of all of it is that we don't want to be creatures. Mm-hmm. We, we don't want to be, and we were duped into thinking that it's not good to be a creature. You don't want to be in this posture of receptivity before the creator. Um, but that, like, that's like how good it is to be a creature, how good it is to be loved by the Father. Quite simply and wondrously, he loved the Father as he was loved by the Father. Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. And like that was the mission, to bring love into the world, period. Right. That was it. 
Oh, it's so good. And that that whole theme of we don't want to be the creature. Newhouse talks about this throughout the whole the whole book, and and he does this in this chapter a number of times. Not so much that way, but it's like we just love to reject God's ways and everything, right? Whether it's this truly is what sin is. It's our rejection of God's way for the universe, and then and then we reject the way he goes to fix it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't like the cross, and we'll get into that a little bit yeah. later. All, this is a common uh, objection to Christianity. It's just like, it's so bloody. bloody. And why did it have to be that way? Isn't there another way we could have done it? I don't yeah. like how he fixed the problem that we made, yeah. right? I, I don't, and of course, you know, the classic John chapter 6, verse 66, right? When all the disciples leave him after he says, uh, you need to eat my body and drink my blood or you have no life within you. They're like, I don't like that either. Yeah. I'm going to leave. I don't like that. Yeah. yeah. It's just, we just love to reject whatever we don't understand. Yeah. At 191, it is finished, yet it is not over. It is finished means it is settled, decided, certain, complete, and incontestable. I think this whole notion of uh, the it is not over part is pretty wild to think that that God who created the world out of nothing redeems the world and, and yet like does it successfully on the cross, but then he also incorporates us into his continuing ongoing mm-hmm. work of redemption. And I, I, like this blew my mind later on in that paragraph. Perhaps we are still the early church with centuries or even millennia to go before every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What? <laughs> like, that, that just, I had never thought about that before that, you know, we're like from the long view of history that people would look back on us today, Catholics living in the year 2021, be like, oh man, they were so close to the time of Christ. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> what? That's insane. I, 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 I've read that in here, of course, and uh, George Weigel, who is another great author that maybe someday we cover or something, but was These a, books are so long. I know. They're so good, though. And he and Newhouse were like best buds. Were they? Oh, yeah. They used to vacation together, and Weigel wrote for First Things regularly yeah, and still does, still actually. Does. I think he yeah. looks and sounds like Tom Hanks. Yeah, that's, he that's does have it. And he loves baseball, too, which is, you know. There's no crying at baseball. <laughs> Anyways, I saw Weigel interviewed um, uh, years ago, and he talked about this whole thing, too. And even specifically, like, so as Catholics, like, one of the the great things, if not the great thing that is just a complete problem for Catholics is the whole idea of the Protestant Reformation, right? And uh, this, this break in the rupture of Christendom. And Weigel's like, yeah. You know, from the long view of history, like New has a singer, that could be like a blip in the history of the church. Just like we look at Arianism, it's like, ah, eh, it's just, they had this disagreement, they sorted it out. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for them going through it, it was centuries. Right. And it was, I mean, it was, I mean, how, how the vast majority of bishops and priests at the time were Arians. Like, heresy seemed like it had taken over the church. Like, I guess this is it. This is how the church ends. Yeah. But, yeah. Man, every Sunday we stand up, pre- preach, there's say the Nicene Creed, and we declare the the death of Arianism, God from God, light from light, true God mm-hmm. from true God. That weird word, consubstantial, that we say now mm-hmm. every Sunday in the creed is our way of saying, hey, Arius, you were wrong. <laughs> You, you were wrong. You and your bros. You were wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point. 
That's that. Wow. That's just nuts. Yeah, I know. I know. So 2,000 years, like, to God, it's... It's nothing. Yeah, it's like, a, it's not even a blink no. for him. Um, that's, I, I love that that whole idea. But so th- that that leads us into, okay, <clears throat> excuse me. So maybe the... Maybe we are in the early church. Maybe we're not in the early church. It doesn't matter. Like for you and me on Saturday morning, uh, March 20th, it really sort of doesn't matter, right? Like we still have our own thing to do and we still have our own um, experience of life in this world. And so he starts to go into, okay, Christ accomplished his mission. It is finished on the cross. Why are we still here then? Like, and how do you explain all the suffering that has gone on since then, right? And we already talked about like Christ retrieves everything that's ever happened, which is a really hard thing to to understand as a almost forty year old adult. I can't much less like explain it to my eleven year old kids, you yeah. know. Um, but he goes into this long. Uh, he starts to go into this this book, the Blood of the Lamb, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about this. This whole idea of uh, it's a story of a father, and uh, it's a novel that he wrote about his child who dies of leukemia, which is just a great example of if this is finished, like why do things like this still happen? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right, right before that though, I just want to read this, this one, this quote from 193, cause I think it's, it's super powerful and ties into this that he says it is finished does not mean that suffering and loss and the rivers of tears are things of the past. It is finished means that they do not have the last word. It means that love has the last word. And this harkens back, I think it was the last chapter, I think. The cross means that the horror is not the last word. Mm-hmm. At the heart of the horror is hope, because at the heart of the horror is Christ. Holy smokes. Um, th- like that right there, I think, is, is I don't know, one of the most, beautiful and yet challenging proposals to invite people into when the cross really shows up in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause as much as we, as much as we say and profess as believing Catholics or Christians, that like, you know, that suffering can be redemptive, that Jesus is with me, man, when, when the world falls down around you and the people that you love are suffering tremendously, that temptation bubbles up in the heart. That's like, this is senseless. God, where are you? Right. Um, and the and the thought is, didn't you come to like stop us from having to go through this? Right. No. 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 And and like that itself is part of the mystery. Not in the sense of, I love how he says, you know, um, puzzlement. Like like oh, we just need more data to sort this out. Right. Uh, no, it's like mystery. I love how the, this this etymology from the Greek muain, which means to silence. Mm. It's the thing before which you just close your mouth because you've got nothing to say. Yeah. But uh, this story, so what's, what's the name of the book? Again? The, the Blood of the Lamb. Is it, is it fictional or is it actual? It is um, a fictionalized account of his real life story that his daughter did die of leukemia. So uh, this, this character named Wanderhope. What a great is, name. Which is such a great name. His, uh, his daughter, um, was dying from from uh, leukemia. Just, I mean, just like so many parents have have walked with their kids through cancer treatment and just awful diagnoses, and and then there comes this moment of great hope where things like look things look like they're turning around, and um, then he finds out that there's a great there's an infection like kind of moving through the hospital, 
and uh, he comes back to the hospital and sees that like it's just taken over her body and it's it's there is no hope now and I, I just was moved to like tears on the bottom of 195 where he is um, like speaking over his his daughter I don't think she's dead at this point yeah um, the nurse left and he moved to the side of the bed and whispered rapidly in their moment alone he says the Lord bless thee and keep thee the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Then I touched the stigmata one by one. Stigmata, of course, are the, the miraculous wounds of Christ. And here he is, he's connecting the wounds of her body to the wounds of, of Christ, which is so powerful. Um, I touched the stigmata one by one, the prints of the needles, the wound in the breast that had for so many months now scarcely ever closed. I caressed the perfectly shaped head. I bent to kiss the cheeks, the breasts that would never be, that would now never be fulfilled, that no youth would ever touch. And then he says, oh, my lamb. So, gosh, so powerful. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And he talks about just... The, the, the whole point of the story is uh, he talks about Wander Hope, who uh, is a man who's been struggling with faith throughout this whole thing, but never completely breaks. And he's got a, a, you know, not a friend, but another parent in the hospital whose child's going through the same thing. And so they have these discussions about the, the purpose of all of this, right? And so uh, ultimately, uh, Wander Hope, he's carrying this cake that he was going to take to his daughter because he thinks he's bringing her home. Yeah. And then of course what just that scene just took place that you just read. And so on the way home, he takes that cake and he launches it at mm. this uh, crucifix outside the church. And uh, the, the cake hits Jesus right in the face. And, but then he says, then everything dissolved. This is on 197. and wander hope, no longer able to stand, sat down on the worn steps of the church Thus, Wanderhope was found at that place which for the diabolists of his literary youth and for those with more modest spiritual histories too was said to be the only alternative to the muzzle of a pistol, the foot of the cross. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that point of like absolute despair, that mm-hmm. point of feeling absolutely lost, that point of feeling absolutely shattered. Um you are you are either at the foot of the cross crying out with the derelict or you are muzzle of a pistol like facing your your face like <laughs> holy smokes so he he, uh, he he continues so wander hope cries oh my lamb his cry is taken up in the sacrifice of the mass this is this is this is new house now his his cry is taken up in the sacrifice of the mass joined to the desolation of pilgrims beyond number, Agnus Dei, Quitolis Peccata Mundi, Miserere Nobis, Dona Nobis Pacem, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, give us peace. It is, how do you pronounce the guy's name? De, De Vries? Uh, De Vries. De Vries, yeah. the author of this book we're talking about. It is, writes De Vries, quote, the recognition of how long, how long is the mourner's bench upon which we sit, Arms linked in undiluted friendship. All of us brief links ourselves in the eternal pity. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, so 
Newhouse goes from here, that whole idea of when we're at that point of despair, we have one of two options, right? It's the muzzle of the pistol or it's the foot of the cross. And he leads us to Good Friday. And he leads in this whole discussion of our, this, the veneration of the cross. Um, and what we do is, as Catholics, which a lot of people, it, even me, like it's, it's, still, it's sort of weird. Like we process the cross. It's the one day of the year that there's not a mass. Yeah, you're not allowed to have mass. There's no mass. And we process one by one to kiss the cross or crucifixion, like, and it, it leads into that whole idea of like, this is weird. First of all, it's a weird experience if you don't really understand it. It's it's also why are we this instrument of torture? This is really what we're going to venerate. Yeah, gosh, I mean, if if a uh, if people from the first century could hop in a time machine to come to one of our Good Friday services, they would be horrified, terrified mystified i mean the the cross is so banal for us now it's i mean it's it's so familiar that we don't even see it but it was it was it wasn't even depicted in christian art for the first like 300 years of the church hmm. it was so horrifying <laughs> like they yeah. they couldn't even put it in mosaic they couldn't even depict it for the first like 300 years of the church um and here we are blithely walking up you know, to kiss, to venerate, to kneel down before the, this, this instrument of, of torture, the worst death imaginable. You know, the word excruciating, when we describe the worst pain imaginable, comes from excruce, from the cross. The cross was designed to inflict the utmost pain. Uh, and here we are, Good Friday, we just walk on up mm-hmm. and we kiss this thing. Why? <laughs> Why? Why do we do that? Because, as he writes on 201, we are participants in this drama. Although exactly how, we do not know. We have not seen the entire script. Our lines are given us one at a time. Through our tears and through our rage at all that has gone wrong, we kneel and kiss the feet of the crucified one in whose death we acknowledge our part. He he talks about, he goes, at the foot of the cross, it may seem everything is a muddle. Clear laws of cause and effect are thrown into consternation. Yeah, he talks that. about that on two hundred three, and it goes back to that our you know chapter one. Like we're implicated in all of this. It wasn't me who hammered the nail, but yet it is me who hammered the nail, right? Yeah. And so God doesn't. He doesn't just come here and do this for us and go, "Hey guys, I took care of it." Yeah. You know, go on with your lives. He, we're complicit in it. But then we're also a participant in the redemption in some way. Yeah. And, and I, I just was thinking like the it that we're talking about, the, and we're, I think we'll get into this more, but like the, the cross, like w- what is it that he's doing? He's, he's, I love how he, you know, he quotes von Balthazar, but he's talking about how the, because God went to the cross, because God went to this place of dereliction and God forsakenness, he was populating bringing the love and mercy and presence of God to a place where previously God's love and presence and mercy was not right. That the, the, I love how he says in the pitch darkness of that night, we wrestle with abandonment to discover we are wrestling with the abandoned one Mm -hmm. from now on in the abandonment of Christ. The alone are never alone. That is because as paradoxical, as paradoxical as it may sound, aloneness is no longer alone. 
but has been brought into the good company of God. <sighs> like, which is, so like this long mourner's bench of history, the people who find themselves either with a muzzle in their mouth or at the foot of the cross, which like that place is no longer a place of isolation. It's a place of profound intimacy, profound communion with the one who's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and so like here at the foot of the cross on Good Friday, as we are both venerating the, the Lord who did this for us and also acknowledging our, our complicity in it, um, I was just thinking how like in The Passion of the Christ, I think you told me this, that Mel Gibson, the director of The Passion, mm-hmm. in the shot where Jesus' hand is, is nailed, that's actually Mel Gibson's hand holding right. the mallet, right? Right. Uh, which is such, I mean, when you think about the arc of Mel Gibson's life story, yeah. you're like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Uh, so, but yeah, so like it's, it's complicated and it's, it's, it's meant to be mysterious what we are doing there at the foot of the cross. I love these, these three paradoxical truths that run together. He says at the veneration of the cross, one, we are implicated and deeply implicated in what's going on here. Like how he cites how for the Holy week or the, the good Friday readings, it's the congregation who shouts crucify, crucify him, him. Right. Second, despite all of it. God is holy. God is strong. God is immortal. Um, I love it. If we lose hold on that truth, everything is lost. Third, and this is the paradox, the heart of the muddle, God's loss of everything on the cross, his taking our place is our only hope that all is not lost. Holy is the God man, holy, vulnerable and faithful, holy, immortal, holy, immortal one dying and dead. Have mercy on us on you's day. Miserere nobis. Holy smokes. Hmm. Yeah. So like one of the things that that, I don't know, brings to mind for me, the, the acknowledgement of this muddleness. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a, rec- I guess a recovering rationalist, you know, like many uh, Americans, anybody who like really gets into thinking clearly about their faith. I think they get to a point where, okay, I really want to, I mean, fetus at ratio, faith and reason. I want to really understand mm-hmm. what's going on here. Um, but I love how he just is like, okay, this is very, very deep and mysterious. And we have to hold all these things together in tension. Uh, get the foot of the cross. And that's why I love that liturgy, the way we worship, the way we uh, pray is gives us the ability to acknowledge all three of those things together in the same time. Cause like, as we are coming forward to kiss the crucified on good Friday, the choir is traditionally singing the, the reproaches of good Friday, which are, it's the lament from God's own heart saying, my mm. people, what have I done to deserve this from you? Right. You're like, oh, what? It's just oh. so deep and mysterious. Mm. So, Maybe that's a good lead into this whole idea of what have I done to deserve this, like the crucifixion. This We should start to talk about the whole notion of sacrifice again. Like, why did it have to be this way? I mean, couldn't God just have waved some magic wand and said, you're all forgiven. It's all good now. Why this idea of sacrifice? And this is something that so many people struggle with, especially because um, it just seems so... And he goes into this, he, it seems so primitive, right? This sacrifice, he, he says this on, a, um, he says this on uh, 216, 
The concept of expiation, of making amends by sacrifice, is indeed primitive. It's primitive in the sense that it is deeply rooted in human nature and variously expressed in all cultures that we know about. Once again, to say something is primitive does not mean that it is naive and should be outgrown. He talks about uh, things that are deeply rooted in our human nature, like attitudes toward sexual relations, property and theft and love of children. He goes, this reflects a wisdom that we ignore at our own peril. Or at our own peril. I wish I could read it this morning. Uh, he quotes his good friend, Cardinal Avery Dulles. Mm-hmm. Newhouse, just he ran with some good people. Yeah, <laughs> he says that uh, what the church means by sacrifice is it's an external act that symbolically expresses the interior homage of the creature to God. It is an act dramatizing the most elementary truth that, as we discussed earlier, we are creatures. Yeah, so the, this whole idea of like sacrifice, and again, it had to be this way. And I don't think, and maybe you know more about this than me, but we don't know why sacrifice is wired into our DNA, I don't think. We don't know why it had to be this way, but it is this way, and like we can't really reject it. Yeah, no, I think part of it is... is it's, he, he mentions this in this chapter too, but when he harkens back and pr- talks about the shattered cookie jar on the on the floor, mm-hmm. that we all have this deep knowledge that's bigger than just simply cultural formation, I think, but this deep knowledge that when things go wrong, something has to be done to set it right. right. Uh, we can't just exonerate and just wipe clean all the faults, because like as he says, that's an even more horrifying prospect that nothing actually then matters. Right, and we can't stomach that. So sacrifice uh, is this. Yeah, it is this deep intuition that, I, in order to be rectified or brought back into right relationship with how things are meant to be, something has to something has to die. Something has to be something. Yeah, something has to die. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's in every culture, right? Yeah, we've uh, we've never met a culture that doesn't do this in some way, and we don't see it today the way that even you know, say the Spaniards saw it when they first uh, met the Aztecs fifteen hundred or in the fifteen hundreds, yeah, um, where there's literally children being sacrificed on temples. But even there, which was horrifying to the Spaniards for good reason, but. Mainly good reason because they're going, we already know, like, you don't need this. The sacrifice has been made. Yeah. And we're here to tell you about it. And maybe the way they did that was a little bloodier and uglier than it should have been. But still, regardless, they're going, your sacrifices have no value anymore. Yeah. They've already been caught up in this man called Jesus Christ, and we're going to tell you about him. Yeah. I mean, we there's still plenty of sacrificing and scapegoating going on in our world today. It's It's... You know, far less bloody, but bloodier in a very different way. I mean, he, I think it's just wild. He talks about on 217, he brings up this phrase, critical consciousness. And mm-hmm. that, like, that wouldn't have even struck my ears if it not been for the last like six, seven months, you know, of our news cycles talking about critical theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory, basically deconstructing everything that we seem to know and trying to find at the bottom of it. You know, some hidden prejudice, some ultimate, you know, ulterior motive, just being suspicious of everything. Right. Um, but in our world today, right, we have like all these people who are 
we're finding the culture is trying to find unanimity at the expense of all these scapegoats, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Rene Girard, who is this great French literary critic who kind of reading all of the great literature of all the world cultures just started noticing this pattern that every culture seems to find unanimity at the expense of some person or some group. And around that scapegoating mechanism, they build some sort of ritual into it that safeguards it. Uh, and Jesus is the one who comes and unmasks that whole system, that whole mechanism by becoming the victim, by giving the victim a voice and saying, hey, like, you don't have to do this, right? I, the, the image I love is like the cross jams, is jammed into the gears of the scapegoating mechanism mm. that's been running throughout the centuries, trying to find peace, trying to find unanimity. And he's uh, like, no, you don't have to do this anymore. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. never heard that the gear jam thing. That's a that's a really cool. Yeah, it's just jamming jam the gears of the scapegoating mechanism. Yeah. So you're you talk about this deconstructionism and a lot of us who, you know, went to college, you heard this kind of stuff in different classes that you were in. And I don't think you uh you're not taught that like we're here to deconstruct everything that you think you know about the world, but that's basically what they're yeah. doing, right? And that's what modern society is doing. So uh, Newhouse, he talks about um, this second naivete, right, on, on two seventeen, and he goes, he says that the final outcome of this critical consciousness, like after we've gone through all of this deconstruction, right, he goes, is the uh, it can lead to our being graced with the second naivete. We are indebted, and he talks about this philosopher that we won't get into here. The second naivete is an understanding reached on the far side of critical analysis and debunking. Having come to recognize that things could theoretically be other than they are, we are brought to the perception that they are as we thought them to be. But on the far side of all our questioning, we know that in a way we did not know it before. He, He uses that whole... That, uh, that phraseology throughout the book, you know, the, the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Yeah. Like after we've gone through, well, maybe it could be this way and maybe yeah. it could be that way yeah. and maybe it, it should be this way. Yeah. And after we go through all these different arguments with ourselves, we go, ah, no, it really was just what we thought at first. It really was just that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, um, this was like a topic for a second podcast, but I wonder if we're going through that right now in a way that is being amplified in history, right? We're past this enlightenment. We're past modernism and post-modernity. And we're in this, I mean, we're asking some really silly, stupid questions right now as a culture, some really dumb things that we know how this story ends. Like that's the whole purpose of this book. It's the whole purpose of the Bible. Like we know how the story ends. And you wonder if we're going just through this acceleration of lunacy right now. And we're going to come to the second naivete, hopefully soon. I'm not saying it's going to happen in our next lifetime. It's certainly Mm -hmm. not tied to the next election. Like it's, it's way bigger than that. Yeah. But I, I think there's going to be a snapback on some of the silliness that we're living through right now. And people are going to go, "Ah, maybe things are as we thought they are. Like when the woke actually wake up. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Not to get all political, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just, (laughs) There's just a lot of insanity going on. And, you know, maybe this is... Postmodernism. Right? It comes after postmodernism. Yeah, post-postmodernism. <laughs> Extra postmodernism. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. So, I, I, you know, I hope, I hope that is. And um, 
But then again, maybe so. Maybe we're at the end of the church, <laughs> you know. And this is like everybody always thinks they're living at the end of time. Everyone does. Yeah. It, it, it's not. It, anyways, so we should probably get back on to a. No, I mean it's all part of this, but I think yeah. like the the part part of how we got on that tangent was just this whole again this whole notion of like did it have to be this way? Like he he I'm, I can't remember where where it is in this chapter, but he quotes he cites a, a, a person that lived next to him in New York City. Mm-hmm who basically completely rejected the idea of Christianity outright just from the perspective of, I can't bring myself to worship a God who would do this to his son. Right. Who would, who would torture his son to death. Um, right? So, like, people balking at the bloodiness, the sacrifice nature of how God rectified our human predicament. Um, I love, on the bottom of, of 219, it says... Um, these and other teachings temper and humanize the idea of punishment and satisfaction, but they do not abolish it. Abolition, which may, be at f- which may at first seem so very humane, would leave us in a morally senseless and infinitely cruel world in which wrong, even the greatest wrong, finally makes no difference. This is the question. How, then, is the endless round of bloody retribution to be brought to an end by a perfect act of reparation? By a sacrifice to end all mm. sacrifices, by the cry from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Oh yeah, he um, he talks about that. Uh, yeah, his neighbor who says, "I would never do this," and, and so that's why this is that lead into like, okay, so what is he actually accomplishing here? This is not God punishing his son because all of us humans are bad people, and I'm going to take it out on you, right? Um, it, it's really. We need to get rid of, he says this on 220, and this goes to Father Ricardo's book, um, you know, yeah. on Rescued, and this is something that you preach on quite a bit. He says, we need to get rid completely of the notion that the atonement is about what God did to Jesus. Yeah. Right? So it is, this requires returning to the truth that the God who brought about our atonement is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Atonement is from the beginning to end the work of the three divine persons of the triune God. Uh, In collusion with the Father, the Son, in the power of the Spirit, freely takes our part by becoming our representative. That's such a good distinction. Yeah. And he goes into the whole idea of this is conspiracy, right? The breathing together of the, which conspire means to breathe, Mm -hmm. the breathing together of the Trinity. Again, this is not a rescue mission that was thought up after the fact. I don't think there was a whiteboard in heaven where a guy was like, okay, um, we got to fix this problem. Got a couple ideas here. Let's, let's brainstorm this. We, we, could, um, we could just come down here and like say, hey, you're all forgiven. Yeah. Um, that could work. We could, um, maybe they could like build a big statue of us or something and like they could all like dance around it or something. <laughs> maybe that could work. Um, or no, Jesus, how about we crucify you? You think that could work? Like that's not it was not a boardroom decision, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's too good. Yeah. Uh, no, that's not how it went. No. So um no, at, at the Father's command, the Son freely goes forth in the power of the Spirit to become one of us on our behalf as representative humanity, capital representative humanity. He lives the life of perfect obedience that Adam and all of us in Adam failed to live. And he completes that life by dying the perfect death. 
That's intense. Yeah, I had wow exclamation point written next to it. My pen, my pen died, and so I, I just like scratched in my book right there. Yeah, I, what? Right? Like, what does that mean to die the perfect death? To to die perfectly? De- I, I'm 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 asking this not like rhetorically. I'm asking like, what does that mean? Like, does it mean that I am I'm I'm dying doing perfectly what God has asked me to do, mm-hmm. or what I'm like what I'm willing to do? What I'm that's just intense. That is just. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking of myself going. I don't want to die a death. Oh, right? Like that, no, you know? I don't. And I, I, he doesn't really talk about this. And it, it, this is sort of some, maybe I've come to my own understanding about this. But I've always thought in it, this book that I'm reading as well, the Fleming Rutledge book called The Crucifixion. She goes into this about how death is really seen. We need to see death as not a thing that happens to it, but death is a power. Right? Death is the power of Satan over this world. Yeah. And I always think of like. Jesus going up the crucifixion is oh, as, as excruciating as that would have been. But just going up there going, you think you're in charge. Yeah. I do not deserve this. I am the one, actually the only two, right, mm-hmm. he and his mom, that don't deserve what you're going to do to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to show you what I mean by it, right? Yeah. And like that overcoming that power mm. and like that's the that is the perfect death oh that's powerful uh, yeah it is the mending of a personal relationship between God and humanity that has been broken that's what Jesus is doing on the cross it is mending this relationship and you've yeah. talked about this a lot about this whole this rupture in the fabric of God that our sin creates and like how do you smooth that out? How do you fix that? Yeah, I, I to that point that I think that that this whole idea of what Jesus is doing that he's not it's not just so on two twenty two he says atonement that is not simply a transaction the the paying of a debt or the exacting of a punishment it is the Father Son and Spirit actively at work to remedy our great wrong. Um, that is, it, it's not a matter of like a balancing of the books, a balancing of the mm-hmm. scales, bringing about a certain quantity of punishment requisite to to heal a certain quantity of wrong. It's it's God healing a wounded relationship, and when you think about how wounded relationships get healed, like in our little human interactions, it requires immense humility. It, it requires immense vulnerability, a dying, a death, right? Maybe not like to the point of bleeding out, but it's 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 a cruciformity, right? It's it's to mm-hmm. mend a relationship, puts you into a posture of intense vulnerability, and how like how do you mend the the ultimate relationship that's been wounded and broken, uh, like this, right? That only God could perfectly do this on our behalf. So he he says. Um, this is what God wanted to do, and in some sense, what it was necessary for God to do. If it was to be done, it was necessary for God to do it, for we could not do it for ourselves. But maybe, <laughs> the rhetorical question here, but maybe good. Maybe God could have left it undone, could have left us permanently alienated from himself. So this brings into the question of, like, did he have to do this? And that, that brings in some very interesting metaphysical, spiritual, theological questions. Like, is there anything compelling the will of God? Well, no. If we're talking about God in the sense of, you know, the, the necessary first cause, uncreated being, all those things. But when we discover that God is love, there's a sense in which, yeah, right? 
the risen Christ asked the disciples on the way to on the road to Emmaus. This was this rocked me. Mm-hmm. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Did God need to save us from sin and its consequences? If we think of God as pure self-sufficient being, the answer is surely no. But the being of God is inseparable from the love of God, which is another way of saying with First John, God is love. So like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, he had to do it. God binds himself by who he is, what he is. He's love. So this, yes, it had to be done. I don't, he couldn't just wash his hands of creation and go, sorry, I messed up, but I'm going to move on. Yeah. Why should, this is 223, why should the word of God, who is God, be the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world? The only answer is love. God does not want to be without us. Mm. Ah. I know. Uh, you, as a as a parent, I, I've had this. Uh, you, you've, I'm sure we've all met people that are uh, by choice do not have children, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that they all say this, but you, I've certainly heard people be like, "How could you bring a child into this world?" Right? Have people asked you that? Um, I've heard people say that wow. before. Uh, you know, just given the world in the the state that it's in, and. I think about it like on my very small scale as Chris and Kara Serger in Wadsworth, Ohio, is like we knew the world was evil and God knew it was going to be this way and yet he creates anyway. Mm-hmm. Same reason, we have children anyway. Like it's that that love of the Father, it's the love that is us. Like despite all of all of it, like you're still going to create, right? You still want to have children because you want that love that you have in you, you want to express it. Like, in how, what greater way can you do that than as a parent where, you know, and we do it in such a finite and such a uh, messed up way, yet God does not. Like, so, yeah, you're bound by love. Like, I think it's easy for me to see that as a parent, so I can only, I can't imagine, like, how the father actually does it, you know, in relation to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, this atonement, this healing of the wound, gives us something super abundant. It, it's not just bringing us back to square one, right? Like Christ does not just simply bring us back to where humanity was in the garden. He actually brings us to a place of even greater glory than we had in the very beginning before the fall, which is, which is crazy. Oh, I know. Right? Which is why if you come to the Easter Vigil, you'll hear in the Exaltet, Oh, happy fault. Oh, necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so glorious a savior. Mm-hmm. So this is 224. Now humanity can never be, never again be alienated from God. The bond between God and humanity can never be broken. For in the God man, Jesus, our humanity participates in the eternal life of God. Humanity, our humanity is eternally one with the second person of the Holy Trinity. Right, the like oh. human flesh, humanity is in the life of the Trinity right now, both in Jesus and Mary. Like, what? I know it's cray cray. Oh, right? oh, I know you've you've talked about this, and I think you've really opened my eyes to this since you've been here. Um, but like, our vision of heaven is so small. Right, and I think I was thinking if you watch that show, The Good Place, at all, no, NBC, people, people, it's talk. okay. Yeah, like you know, it's it's quirky, but it's mm-hmm. basically like 
you know, the good places, it's like Wadsworth, just everybody's lawn is really nice, you know, <laughs> and like uh, none of the houses need new roofs. Yeah. It's like, no. No, that's so And, and I'm sure Chick-fil-A would be free. Like, that'd be great. And open on Sundays. Yeah, and open on Sundays. Like, I hope that. I hope that's true. But, like, no. Like, we are, like you just read, we're in God. Like, how do you, we can't understand what that actually means, but it's got to be awesome. It's going to be. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it's awesome. It's going to be great. So this, uh, oh, gosh, this, this theme that's been woven throughout this book about dare we hope that all be saved. I love this on 225. Is it really true that absolutely nobody is beyond the loving reach of the cross? Has the way home been cleared for absolutely every prodigal son and daughter? Is there not even one lost sheep who is not found by the good shepherd? No, not one. Some decline to take the way home. Some persist in getting lost again and again, but the high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice has been tempted in every respect as we are. Oh, right here. Mm. That means that there is nobody in any circumstance where he has not been as well. Not only has he been there, but he is there for all time is caught up in the eternity of love, crucified and triumphant. I, I, I had never thought about that line from Hebrews before. He's been tempted in all ways, but didn't sin. Like, but what Newhouse is saying is that Every person's temptation Christ has experienced, mm-hmm. that he's been there, and he says he is there. Just like the gospel with the Samaritan woman at the well, that Jesus is already waiting by every futile well that we've dug for our lives, mm-hmm. waiting for us to slake our thirst on his love and not the futile wells of sin and, and things of this world. Like he's there, he's been there, and he is there. Oh, Lord have mercy. I, I mean, had. We need to land the plane, but, and this is where we do it. How do you even, if you have not read this book, maybe for pages 226 to 227 by themselves, buy the book. Yeah. (laughs) It it is, oh, I don't even know where to start on here. Well, I I think, I think it just bears uh, a nice long quote. I think you're right. All right. So I'm going to read from... The first full paragraph in okay. 226. So, so the whole theme of this whole chapter is what happened on the cross. It is finished. It is the cross point of history. It is where everything revolves around what happened on that Friday afternoon. From, the, from beginning to end and every step along the way, the work of atonement is the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even as he penetrates to the heart of darkness, Jesus is not abandoned by the light. He was always on a mission from the Father to the Father, and his penetrating to the heart of darkness means that nobody, absolutely nobody, is alone in the heart of darkness. Christ has been there. Christ is there. From the cross point of history, the world goes out, the word goes out, that those who think they are abandoned by God are in fact not abandoned. We can despair of God, but he never despairs of us. We can turn our back upon God, but he never turns his back upon us. Never. There is absolutely nobody seated on the long mourner's bench of the eternal pity who is in a place where Jesus has not been before, where he is not now. This is what it means to find ourselves at the foot of the cross, which is the alternative to the muzzle of the gun and every other act of despair. Repeatedly, Jesus says we are to take up our cross and follow him. 
However hesitatingly, we can dare to do so because his cross is our cross. Our suffering is his suffering, and his victory is our victory. We take up our cross and discover that he is already there, bearing it with us, bearing it for us from before the foundation of the world to the end of time. Again, Julian of Norwich understood that when she said, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. In the sacrifice of the cross, all is endured and all is redeemed. For all that ever was wrong is wrong and will be wrong. The price has been paid. Beyond our capacity to understand or explain, justice has been done and justice was done by love because the justice of God is love. And that is because God is love. At the foot of the cross, faith discerns through our tears that nothing is left unattended, nothing unknown, nothing unloved, nothing unredeemed. Atonement, the great thing, the thing that had to be done or else nothing could be done, has been done. On a certain Friday afternoon at about three o'clock, when the children were going home from school, when the Lamb of God cried, it is finished, let me not love thee if I love thee not now. Let me not trust thee if I trust thee not in this. Atlas, foolish and failed, kneels to venerate the wood of the cross, on which hangs our every hope, by which all that we must and cannot do has been done. Let me not love thee if I love thee not now. Let me not trust thee if I trust thee not in this. How strange that in this end should be our beginning. Agnus Dei, Quitolis Peccata Mundi, Miserere Nobis. I feel like we should say amen. I feel like we should say amen. Glory. My goodness. Well, Father, um, the next word is the last word, which is, uh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And that will be released on Good Friday. Oh, how perfect. Which is the day when we will all go and kiss the cross, yeah. venerate the cross. Are we allowed to do that this year? Uh, we are asked to to kneel to make some act of reverence towards the cross, yeah. Okay. I, I will... would suggest that families would go home and kiss crucifixes in their own home. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So we are going to venerate the cross, the cross point of history. Father Richard John Newhouse. You do it again. It is finished. It is consummatum asked. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and we'll uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time.